0: Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> hey, Hello. Simon. Skyler. Simon. How you hey, Simon. It's Skylar. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's Hello. up, Simon? How are you doing? Hey. Hello. Simon. Hello. Hello. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. This is Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom and thoughts, folk and fairy tales from our elders. And I am your host, Simon Brooks. Hello. A meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to do interviews with some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling. People who, for their work, travel around telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems and wisdoms, and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad you're here. Alton Chung is a very funny guy. He's a scientist, a computer guy, theatre tech but really he's a storyteller. We've only met once or twice and I've always enjoyed his company. Alton is a Japanese Korean storyteller who grew up with stories, superstitions and the magic of the Hawaiian Islands. A conversation led us through the history of Asian Americans in Hawaii and World War II, ghost stories and later in part two on finding stories, his process and healing. Please enjoy part one of this conversation with Alton Chung. So, Alton, thank you very much indeed for joining me for Conversations with Storytellers. It's been a little while since I've done one of these, and I'm very excited that you've joined me.
1: Oh, so, thank you how so how much for inviting you? me. No,
0: you're welcome. You're welcome. How are you doing?
1: Well, not too bad. Winter's Christmas holidays coming up. This is going to be fun. <laughs> are, you a, are you a big Christmas holiday fan, or I am. I am. Um, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that I kind of look forward to. Um, I don't know why. I just do. <laughs> yeah. do, you still, uh, do you, so this is a question. Do you, do you hang stockings up? No, we don't hang stockings up, and it's. it's uh, I usually go home and, and uh, spend Christmas with my dad and. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but you know, it's, it, I like that that cool Christmas in the air and the uh, you know just the old whole ambiance of the thing. Um, I don't know, it just it just makes me happy. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, it's a nice time of the year. Now, I'll, I'll, you you live between um, Hawaii and Portland, Oregon, right?
1: Well, yeah, I live in Vancouver, Washington, right across the river from Portland, Oregon. And uh, my my dad is elderly. And so uh, my brother and I trade off uh, taking care of him. He can't live by himself anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, although during the pandemic, it was like, you know, no one knew what was going on. So I spent 18 months there. (laughs) And so this is like uh, the first time. Yeah. So this is like the first time I've actually, you know, one of the first times I've actually been back in my own home so it's kind of nice to be in my own space and yeah. look at all the maintenance jobs that i have that i need to get done <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, i was just thinking because i'm looking outside and we've got snow here and i know that vancouver gets snow as well and i'm just i'm glad that your pipes didn't freeze and like you come back to a waterlogged house
1: <laughs> oh yeah no no I, I i've got very good neighbors who check on my place and i'm very appreciative of them
0: well, that's great that's great so, one of the first questions that I usually ask people is, what what was it like growing up as, as little Alton? What was, life, what was life like for you as a child growing up? And what influenced you um, in so far as story goes?
1: Oh, well, as far as story goes. Well, um, at a very young age, my mother really pushed me to read. Um, and that is, you know, it was... A gift. It opened up so many doors for me, and I'm so appreciative of that. Uh, so I was always going to the library or reading all kinds of things. And uh, as a, you know, just, I never thought of myself as ever being a storyteller. <laughs> I, I always wanted to be a scientist. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I'd, I'd read all kinds of different things, lots of science. And for a while, I was into whales, dinosaurs, whales, horses, you know. Um, and... Allowing me to read, learning how to read at an early age and and being a voracious reader, I was able to explore on my own whatever I wanted to look at. We didn't have the, you know, internet was, you know, far away at that time. Um, But so, you know, my world was going to the library and opening up books and things like that. And, you know, looking through the encyclopedia, I didn't, you know, just a lot of times I didn't even understand what they were talking about. But I love looking at all the pictures.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think you and I are of a, a similar generation, if not the same one. Um, and the illustrations in a lot of the Encyclopedias, I mean, at least the ones that I were looking at, There were obviously the kids' ones, which had lots of pictures in, but they're also the, like, the not quite kids, not quite grown-ups, but it had these line drawings in, and I always loved those line drawings. Was that the same for you, or was...
1: Oh, I love the pen and ink drawings, and, I, I yeah. you know, the photographs of, mm-hmm. I remember, you know, looking... Here's a photograph, you know, it's a black-and-white photograph of an aardvark. I said, what's an aardvark? <laughs> oh, my yeah. God, that, there's something like that actually lives like that? Wow. Um, you know, and, and, and the, the encyclopedia, <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know that. There was no smellogram in the encyclopedia. You know, it was an old set. Uh, I don't know how we got it. It was like, I remember it was like 1954 set, so we got it from somebody. And, yeah. uh, you know, just after World War II, that era, and so they had lots of photographs and and you know graphics about you know World War Two, and you know as as a kid, just just fascinated by the technology and and just the sheer scope of things. I didn't really understand what people were fighting for, but you know at yeah. the time, you know there there were lots of war movies on television, and and looking at all these all these pictures of what it was like, you know, trying to imagine what it was like. Um, and then you know the when you go to the uh, look at the body, all these uh, transparent. Tra- overlays of the body here's here's your here's your intestine system here's your liver and i'm like wow what is all this stuff it's colorful and it's cool that's inside of me ew gross okay next (laughs) (laughs) but that just allowed me to go and you know just explore and have fun um and uh, you know, and as far as stories go, my mom would tell me stories, I guess, uh, that she as a child knew. Like, you know, lots of Japanese folktales, like Momotaro, the Peach Boy, and um, uh, uh, Isunboshi, Little One Inch. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would either people gave me or I ended up having my own little library of books and folktales. And lots of times, you know, I knew the story, but ultimately, the time I just look at the pictures and just kind mm-hmm. of... Um, Imagine and start talking to my tell, tell a story to myself. I don't know what I was talking about. They, they say that this is what I used to do, and I used to look at the pictures and, and start talking about describing what's in the picture and what was going on, making things up as I went along. No, no clue. I have no real memory of that, but they have photographs of me doing it. <laughs> well, photographs can't talk, so but
0: yes. <laughs> so, I so all, all right, so you you said that. World War 2 was
1: you weren't World War 2 wasn't going on when you were alive was it? Oh no 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 this was I was years later but okay, yeah. um okay. it was it was you know I grew up in Hawaii mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um uh as a child I'd hear these stories and my parents would look upon you know certain men they said oh that he's he's in the 442 you know and they look they speak of them in, in awe and uh I just really learned, okay, you know, people respect these people, whatever they did, I don't know. Um, And it wasn't until years later, actually, when I really became, I mean, I I knew kind of sort of the story of the 100th Battalion, 442nd Regimental Combat Team, the all Japanese American combat units. But I really didn't know their story uh, until, um, you know, I became a storyteller. And one day, I just got a wild hair, and I said, "Oh, I want to tell the, you know." I noticed I knew that these these men were getting older, and a lot of them were passing away. I said, "Oh, that's I, I you know." As a storyteller, I can tell stories. I want to tell the story of of the four forty second. And um, I remember mm-hmm. calling up my uncle, got close close of the family, and he said, "I said, you know, I, I'm a storyteller now, and I, I want to tell the story." And I knew you were you were your sergeant in E Company. Uh, I want to interview you, and he said, "Oh, no, 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 no." been 60 years i'm still trying to forget I'm like, wow. oh, okay backed away um you know and i kind of you know continued to do my own research and things like that and I, and I don't know i just had this compulsion i was just driven to go in, and try to understand what these guys went through and to tell their story um and i was invited to tell the to tell my version of the 442nd story at the uh 65th reunion of the 442nd hilton well, hawaiian ball the whole show for that right I created one piece and that piece okay. was so successful that I created an entire show around that thing. Okay. But um, at the time I only had this one story and um, you know, I was 1200 people, You know, big screen television in the, in, the, in the corners, people from the Pentagon on the, on the lead table, uh, oh. Danny Noy, the Senator was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm about ready to go on. And this close friend of the family, my uncle comes up and he says, oh yeah, he'll 140. I was on Hill 140 and I looked at him and said, Hill 140, that was in Italy. That's where Ted Tenoi won the Medal of Honor. He said, Yeah, I was there. But you see, this one leg is all shorter than the other. I got hit in the ankle. I got evac'd out. I missed all that Lost Battalion stuff. And then he went wow. away and to talked to all his friends. And his wife comes up to me. My aunt says, I've been married to that man for fifty-five years. This is the first I've heard of any of this stuff. So wow. that, that's that's how back- closely <laughs> held these stories are.
0: Right. So let let's backpedal a bit because I know that the Sure. So I was, go- I was going to bring this up later on. I was going to, you know, work. Through oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, is all good. this is all good. So the, the four, the four twenty second, the, the four hmm. twenty seconds, four forty second, four forty seconds. Sorry. Yes. It w- was a regiment that was created, as I understand it, was created by um, the people from Hawaii because they became. They, they, there was another regiment that came before them, right, and and also. Well, young people from, or maybe not young people, but people from the inter- Japanese internment camps, right?
1: Okay, first of all, um, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, they <clears throat> all the Japanese Americans, many of them who were um, in the military, all of a sudden became suspect. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were rounded up, their weapons taken away, and they didn't know what to do with these guys. So some of them put them in the stockade, some of them put them on work details. Um and then uh, they decided, the government decided to go and create a separate unit, you know, the 100th Battalion Separate, which was, you know, it's a like, you know, like, a, I guess, discriminatory unit. You know, they they put all the mm-hmm. same guys in the same unit, and leave them alone, um, and they sent them off to to boot camp. And these guys did so well in training. Mm -hmm. that they realized that, hey, uh, you know, this is something special. Because a lot of these guys, they knew that they had to be superlative soldiers to be considered average. They just wanted to be accepted. But they did so well that the government realized, and at the time, early in the war, America was losing the war, and they realized they needed as many fighting men as possible. So they formed the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, uh, which was a... uh, uh, they they wanted to have like 2,400 people, I believe, 1,200 from Hawaii and 1,200 from the from the internment camps, um, to go to form this unit. Almost 10,000 people from guys from Hawaii volunteered for this unit, and uh, you know they were trained. And in the meantime, the 100th Battalion was shipped off to go and, and fight in Europe. They didn't allow them to fight in the Pacific because they couldn't tell who was you know who was the enemy and who was not. Um, and <laughs> a lot of times they didn't trust them too, you know? Um, yeah. so they had to go and prove themselves. And so these guys Hundred of got sent to Italy and they did amazing things. Um, the, uh, in the battle of Belvedere, they won a uh, presidential unit citation. That's like everyone in the entire unit getting the distinguished service cross, which is the wow. second highest medal you can get for valor in combat, just under the medal of honor. Um, and, uh, you know, and, then, the, you know, in the meantime, the 442nd was being trained in Camp Shelby uh, in Mississippi, and they were shipped to Italy. And the 100th Battalion was joined to the uh, 442nd regimental combat team, but they were able to keep their own single unit designation because they were so uh, amazing. I mean, they were known as the Purple Heart Battalion because, oh, wow. so, like, so many guys got wounded. Some some guys got, you know, as many as four, you know, uh, maybe even, you know, even more Purple hearts being separate wounded incidents. And they wouldn't, they, you know, they go to the hospital, they get treated and they go back to the unit. They could have get shit toed but they went back to their unit because it was all about the guy, you know, take, you know being part of that unit, taking care of their friends and things like that. Um, and so over the course of the year, over uh, course of the war, uh, this became for its size and duration and of service, the most decorated unit in U.S. military history. Almost wow. had 18,000 awards. Um Total of maybe I think seven presidential unit citations, uh, oh, twenty-one medals of honor. Yeah, you know, just know. the list it goes on for for. It's just an amazing, amazing thing that these guys were able to accomplish, and because of that, they won respect. And uh, and like I said, growing growing up, you know, all the people understood what these people, that these men had sacrificed, what they went through, and they were. Really revered, at least in Hawaii, where where I grew up. Anyway,
0: right, right, that's amazing. So you grew up around some of these people, presumably.
1: Yeah, and but you know, these these a lot of these guys were what they called Nisei, second generation Japanese Americans. So their their parents were immigrants, and they were the first generation born in the United States, and uh, they're. A lot of the, the, the you know they were taught, and as I was taught, that you know if it's something is really good, if you've done something really good, you don't have to say anything. That's called bragging. But right. everyone, if it's really good, everyone should know, and that's enough. And so these guys are a lot of real, guys are really reticent uh, to say anything. Um, and also, you know, we didn't know that PTSD. They call it shell shock. I mean, there's a lot right. of suffering that went on that people just didn't know. They you know just had to suck it up. Um, and so right. a lot of these stories were held closely because, you know, like a lot of the Vietnam vets, you know, you weren't mm-hmm. there. I can't tell you, you wouldn't understand. Um, yeah. And so and now, you know, a lot of these, the most, a lot of them are going already, but when they were in the eighties and nineties, they realized that, Hey, um, no one's going to be able to know or tell our story. And they began opening up a little bit more.
0: And that's when you started to collect the stories.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, luckily there were uh, enough documentation. Um, there's an organization in Seattle called Den Show, which uh, uh, Tommy Ketter runs that. And he they specifically went after and interviewed a lot of these veterans and people f- who went through that part in World War II. And they indexed and categorized and put all those interviews online. And I was able to go and comb through that and search for specific types of information or specific wor- uh, in- words and things like that. And the interviews would come up. Um, again, a lot of many, many books have been written of, about this uh, personal recollections, historical things. And I was able to, to really dig into, uh, uh, to get a lot of these first hand accounts, which is different than like say the Filipino veterans of World War II, which mm-hmm. actually relatively little is written about. And, you know, these guys were really kind of really discriminated against, and are you know were denied a lot of the benefits and things that were promised by the U.S. government to this day.
0: Wow, there's so much that we don't know about these little nooks and crannies of history.
1: <laughs> well, um, um, it's like this... they're not too nice things about you know
0: right. what happened
1: during the war, yeah. and uh, you know. It, what I've learned is, you know, any kind of historical document is that you know who writes the histories, right? Yeah,
0: the people yeah, who want absolutely,
1: and you know, no one wants to go and you know look at all the not so nice things that they did. They want to look at the glorious things, and you know, uh, but
0: yes, and... I find it
1: fascinating <laughs> digging digging through some of these things and realizing, you know, um, what ha- what actually happened and what has changed, and um, you know showing respect i guess more than anything else to right. what these guys, what these people have experienced and i worry like I said you know for the mm-hmm. veterans coming through iraq and you know, afghanistan my goodness you know um what's going to happen to them you know and and hopefully they were able to go and avail themselves of services and counseling and things like that that were not available to these veterans from right. vietnam yeah. korea War too yeah
0: and I think that, you know, the, one of the things that has helped, I think, is, you know, it's not shell shock anymore. It's PCSD or whatever, you know, I don't always get it mixed up. But, um, you know, it's a very real thing. And, and, and it's people know about it now and they can help, treat it, which is, I think, fascinating and brilliant as well. Because, you know, people need that help, especially, you know, I mean, you, they don't get paid a ton of money to go and risk their lives, you know. And when they come back, it's, you know you need to look after these people. That's how I think of it, anyway.
1: So and I mean, agree.
0: So one of the things that you talked about just now is is that a lot of a lot of veterans hold these stories close to themselves because they you know they don't want to relive it. It's totally triggering for them, and it's really hard to to process all that stuff. Especially a lot of these people, they they were out there in their younger years, right, and so. There's that element to it as well. There's, there's, there's with age comes wisdom, and we can realise, oh, that's what's doing this to me, right? Whereas when you're young, it's like, why am I thinking like this? You know, why are these things happening, right? And you you, you don't have that wisdom to deal with it. But also, you know, from from the, the from the stories I've read about um, you know China as well as, as as Japan, is that that you know you're talking about the honour of people, right? these people are very very much revered and honored but there's there's the other side of honor as well where the the soldiers the, the characters in a lot of the folk and fairy tales that I've read, they're very honorable people right and they don't brag as you said. and do you think that adds to the to the closeness that of which the, these people held that these these men and women who fought held these stories to them do you think that's part of it as well there's like
1: some cultural. I stories. think it's part of it. Um, there's a story that I received from a man by the name of Goro Arakawa. He passed away, uh, but he, his family ran the Arakawa general store in Waipahu, Hawaii for many, many years, um, plantation general store. And he was well versed in the history of Waipahu and the people there. And he said that, you know, a lot of these boys who went to fight with the 442nd, you know, 18, 20 year olds. They have no clue, in, in situations they n- have no concept of what's going on or any, any, anything to, to really compare to. And They said that, you know, they knew they had to, to do very well and they had no guideposts. But they, a lot of them went to Japanese school, you know, Japanese language school, which is like an after-school program. Uh, and that one of, the pr- one of the classes they had was called essentially ethics. In which they read Japanese folk tales and stories of heroes and things like that, For and they patterns. They read folk and fairy tales. Yeah, because uh, it brilliant. it shows, you know, how to behave yeah. and the moral dilemmas and and you know exemplary honor essentially, and so these boys who are you know out fighting in Europe. They've never been out of you know out of the country, and here they are in these situations they have no concept of. They fell back upon what they learned in that class. How they patterned their behavior after the heroes and the folk tales that they that they knew that this is this they held up. This, this is this an example of how you need to behave, and that's how they conducted themselves. Um, and so, I look that you know upon that and say, yeah, there's a definite connection as far as. Um, the stories that you hear growing up, how you're being held up as as a to behave in a society or to to be honorable. And um, you know, when you have no other guideposts, when you're in situations that you have no context, what do you fall back upon? You fall back upon what you know. And what you mm-hmm. know is what you've been taught of how to behave. And right. you can and I believe that these men did that and conducted themselves to the best of their ability to in the most honourable way they could. Well, yeah,
0: that's—I I find that absolutely fascinating. That that's you know that ethics class was—I mean, that's one thing that I think is missing from a lot of schools. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. I think ethics is something that should be brought into schools all over the all over the world, really, because I think that's that's a huge part of what's missing. I mean, if we look at what's going on in the world around us, if we were taught ethics. <laughs> I think we'd well, be able even
1: to just even just other ways of looking at things, you know, right. um, other perspectives. I remember when I was in grad school, there was a class, and it was you know a requ- I think it was a required class, and um, it was when I was working on my MBA. Um, and the te- the professor brought in all kinds of different things. He had us read, you know, um, uh, Wiesenthal's, you know man's search for uh, quest for uh for existence or something like that. I forget exactly. But he brought in poetry. He brought in um uh things that well, you know, you can uh, ethical dilemmas and how to how to this how to make decisions. And yeah. um, you know, I remember one of these, you know, classics in the center cannot hold. All things go to chaos, you know, and they said, what does this mean to you people? And how does this how does this apply to a business situation um, or just another way of looking at things uh, and um, realizing that, you know, it's not just dollars and cents. that These are people's lives you're playing with here and that, um, you know, what is your responsibility as a person? as, you know, yeah, a business leader or uh, a manager or whatever it happens to be. But what is your your obligation as a member of society mm, um, yeah. to look at things in another perspective that way, and to take that into consideration, you know, as well as the dollars and cents and things like that, and what is a, a good business decision, but what is a good decision for society in general and you as a person individually. Um, so that perspective, I think, is important.
0: I, I, yeah, I totally agree with you um absolutely agree with you i think it's really important to do that but you don't just have an mba do you 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 have a a a degree in zoology you have a bs in in zoology and you also have a master's in oceanography am i right
1: yes so i was a scientist for eight years
0: so you're a scientist for eight years and then you ended up doing what after that
1: (laughs) Oh, I kinda of wandered around. <laughs> uh no, I, I always wanted to be a scientist and you know I was able to be an oceanographer. I went I was went out to sea a lot. I was a seagoing computer technician. I, you know, did my research off the you know off the coast of you know Oregon, Washington, British Columbia and oh, on wow. salmon. And, uh, you know, I was uh, Seagoing Tech for the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, uh, for the National Marine Fisheries Service. I went off to the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, just, you know, running net systems and just being a regular deckhand and having a great time. But, uh, you know, I was living grant to grant. And I realized, you know, um, (laughs) I need to get something more stable. I had a choice. I could either go on to get a Ph.D. and write my own grants or do something else. And... I really didn't like reading research papers. I thought they were very, you know, a lot of them were pretty dry. And wow. uh, and I wanted stories. <laughs> and uh, also, you know, the uh, my major professor had 25 years in the business, international reputation. He wasn't getting any grant money. And I said, God, I could spend another five to seven years working on a Ph.D. and then do what? Uh-huh. So I decided, you know, I tried all kinds of things. I trained as a massage therapist um, and realized that, gee, male masseuses were not, you know, and this is like the 80s, male masseuses are not really welcomed. (laughs) I said, okay, enough of that. What else can I do? And then I went went back and got an MBA. That's so cool. Because I wanted, I needed a job, (laughs) a real job.
0: (laughs) A real job, as they say, as non-artist people say. (laughs) Why don't you have a real job? It's a real job. Storytelling. So, so when you were when you were doing your oceanography work, and, um, and and you've still got this story, I'm assuming that you still have this storytelling thing going on in your head and in your soul. Were you were you aware of some of the ocean stories, or all of the, or not all of them, obviously, but like a great many of them, or not, not so much?
1: Um, you know, I I was always interested in what this thing was on the beach or in the ocean and why was it there and what was it doing and how okay. was it making its living? Those are the things that I was just intrigued with. And, you know, um, when the fish species would come up on deck, I'd be running around being so excited, looking at its colors, taking pictures and things like that. Um, Cause I was just thrilled with that. I had no clue, absolutely none about storytelling or what that really meant. I just knew that this is what, this is the aspects of my work that I really enjoyed. Um, I loved history, you know, learning about, you know, what has happened before and why things are the way they are. That's fascinating to me. Um, uh, no, I really didn't think anything about becoming a storyteller until, you know, I was working for Hewlett Packard and realized, you know, okay, um, what else can I do? Um, okay. So, so no, so, no I, I worked as a technical director for, for startup theater companies. I did lighting design. I learned how to do lighting design in theaters from at a at – a, Uh, for a community theater and uh, i did that for many many years and like i said was a technical director for a couple startup theater companies and i was still looking around for things to go and do (laughs) and that's when you know storytelling happened
0: so so how old were you when you were doing the lighting stuff and and oh
1: my 30s i mean i already had i was i was you know i was was working a full-time job and i was bored and i wanted to do something else and uh (laughs) My my office mate said, oh, well, she turned out to be the head, the president of the local community co- uh, community theater company. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And they said, yeah, we're looking for technical people. I said, that sounds interesting. And so off I went. And I was hooked for that. That was a great time. And I, you know, being, you know, the person in black, you know, hiding in the shadows and, you know, doing the lighting and, and, and watching all these people on stage do their thing and watching the audience, you know, react to that. That was just so much fun.
0: That must have informed you somewhat, like watching from behind and seeing what people do and seeing the the good reactions and the bad reactions. Um,
1: yeah, it really did.
0: Storytelling to some degree.
1: Um, I understand lighting. <laughs> Find your light, be well lit. But also, you know, I can see, you know, what, you know, I watch these people, my friends, you know, the actors and actresses on stage, you know, with a facial expression, with a gesture, with a movement, you know, Oh, look at that. Look what you're communicating with that. Not only delivering the line and, and interacting with other people on stage, but you know, you're what you're saying volumes by not saying anything at all and just simply, you know, arching an eyebrow or you know, staring off at someplace else or with your body language. So yeah, these are things that I learned and I and I profited by that. But again, I had no clue what to do with any of this knowledge. I just thought it was interesting. And it wasn't until um, when I became a storyteller, I realized that everything I had been doing my entire life had, you know, given me the tools that I could use to do this. I mean, I knew about computers and I knew how to how to write from, from, you know, writing scientific papers and things like that. I knew about uh, how to do research. Um, I learned about how to be on stage. I learned about lighting um, and, you know, the nonverbal things that you do on stage. Um, and uh, you know certainly the delivering of the lines and so you know how to run a small business you know all these things that I picked up along the way um, you know has, has allowed me to go in and play now <laughs> yeah. but that's amazing that you that
0: that your life really did provide all these tools for you. It was like you know, but with you, it was like you were picking up these skill sets and these, these tools that you could use for storytelling. And then, then when, when did you come upon storytelling? What, what was that moment when you were like, this is storytelling, I want to do this?
1: I took a class. <laughs> I mean, I, there was a um, yeah. There's a, there's a uh, an independent bookstore in a little tiny town in Oregon where I was living, and I knew the owner. And I was you know hanging out in his store and looking at his newsletter. I said, "What's this storytelling class?" He said, "Oh, interesting story behind that that ad." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "I found it posted. This posted had all this information on it." And I said, "Oh, well, it's a person who wants to teach a class. I'll put it in my newsletter." He publishes his newsletter. He gets a phone call from the lady. He says, I guess I'm teaching a class. He goes, what do you mean? He said, well, I gave you that post a year ago. This post had wandered around his desk for about a year. And he finally put in his newsletter. And I said, this is too weird. Exactly it. This is too weird. i got to take this class. I don't know what it is. I just take it because I was bored. And, uh, you know, we did theater games for the first meeting. And she said, all right, everyone, go home, prepare a story, come back, and tell it. And I'd just been to South Africa. I was visiting some of my old professors who were on sabbatical there. I had a book of South African folktales. And so I just picked one. And I, you know, memorized it and came to class and told it. And this lady kind of looks at me and says, okay, what are you going to do with this talent? I looked at her and said, nothing. I've got a job. I don't care. And she was the head of the local storytelling guild. And she kept after me and after me. She'd tell stories, tell stories. Okay, fine, I'll tell stories for you. So I told stories with the Guild and for the Guild for about a year and a half, and I put it aside because i got busy doing other things. And then uh, 2003, you know, I've moved up to, you know, near Portland, Oregon now. And uh, I joined the local storytelling Guild here. And Mm -hmm. everyone keeps telling me, oh, you're a storyteller, you're a storyteller. I said, fine. You know, uh, there's a thing called a showcase uh, down in, you know, Salem. It happens every two years have yeah, five minutes on stage, all the, the whole audience of librarians from Washington, Oregon. I said, Great, I have one five minute story. So I said, All right, get up on stage, tell my five minute story, get off stage. I said, okay, that was a good experience. I started getting phone calls from these librarians saying, Come to my library, tell stories for an hour, we'll pay you. And I said, Pay? Money? Really? <laughs> and that was the beginning. I mean, it was it was a year of living dangerously because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but luckily, like I said, um, You know, I was, uh, I found mentors in the storytelling community. I was really embraced by this community and uh, it's been an amazing journey ever since. And like I said, that's been like, Ooh, gosh, almost 20 years ago now. That's really cool. So who were your mentors? Um, Well, actually, I guess, uh, um, you know, there's uh, the president at the time uh, and he kind of, you know, kind of, encouraged me and there are some other tellers in the guild who also encouraged me so you know you're really good Why don't you come tell stories with us etc um i ran into uh you know i was being invited to little tiny festivals and there's one teller said oh you know, you should go to the national storytelling festival and see you see what you know storytelling is really like and i said what's that and you know i said oh well uh, the teller said okay i, I got space you know and we weren't in a house we got space Why don't you come out i said all right dropped everything Bought a last-minute ticket, off I went, and I was amazed. It was like, my God, this is storytelling. This is amazing. You know, my, you know, I was just enthralled. And um, I remember walking down the street in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Never been to Tennessee before. I'm just walking down the street, and all of a sudden, this Asian lady and this black guy stopped me and said, Oh, are you a storyteller? And I look at them and say, yeah, brand-new storyteller. That was Motoko and SU Bumpus. And they said, Oh, they start talking to me. And I realized, yeah, I'm like one of the few Asian people wandering around the streets of Jonesboro. Yeah, right. And they said, Oh, do you, do, do you know Robert and Nancy? And I go, Who are those people? They said, Oh, no, we'll send you an email. So yeah, I said, All right. So, yeah, well, actually, not. I mean, Robert and Nancy are, are, are of Ethotech, like Robert Kikuchi Ngoho yeah. and Nancy Wong, down to live in San Francisco. And I said, All right. I wrote them and said, You don't know who I am, but these are the people who said I should contact you. And we had this little email conversation. And it turns out that they were coming, they were invited by my old guild to come up and be part of a storytelling festival in the little tiny town I used to live in. So I said, fine, I'll go down there. And I met them and I talked to them and they were they happening to be coming up to Portland. I guess they were spending some few days in Portland and then flying back to San Francisco. And so they said, I oh, want you to come out to dinner with us. I said, okay, sure. I'll talk story with you know storytellers. I don't know anything. And they said, oh, we have a mentorship program. I said, really? Yeah. And, you know, so this it's, grooming process, essays, and all kinds of stuff, I had to go and fill out this form. But I did. And they said, okay, well, why don't you come down and be our mentor? You know, be our mentee. We'll be your mentors. I said, an apprentice? Yeah, it's an apprentice program. I said, okay. And so for the next year or two, I'd fly down to San Francisco like every, you know, few months and spend a week and long weekend there and learn the craft of storytelling. You know, what it was, what it, the amount of work it takes to perform at a very high level of excellence. Questions about how to run a business, you know, the business aspect of it. Anything I was just possibly, you know, wanted to know. And, you know, it was, uh, it was really eye-opening. And like I said, that led to other things and meeting other storytellers who, you know, again, this community is very generous and, you know, willing to go and, you know, talk to you, answer all of your questions. <laughs> I remember <laughs> one of the first storytelling festivals I would ever been in. I, I I didn't know. It was in Hawaii. It was a talk story festival, and Margaret Reed McDonald was the feature teller, and uh, the guy who ran it, Jeff Gear, said, oh, you know, I said, I can volunteer. I don't know what I'm doing. Well, why don't you go be her driver? I said, oh, okay. And Margaret <laughs> Mar- 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 and I are, and are good says, friends yes, now.
0: you give me a driver. Oh goodness!
1: Well, I, did, I did. I had no idea. I was just starting out. I had no clue what I was doing. And Margaret, I, she's a dear friend of mine now, and she says, for the next three days, I peppered her with question after question after question, and she was so very patient, so very patient, and answered all my questions. <laughs> um, but I can, you know, I was just so hungry, so thirsty for any aspect because I had no clue what I was doing, and I, was, you know, lots of times I still don't. But um, Again, the patience and the, you know, the accepting and taking the time to answer questions. These are things that I'm always grateful for. And, you know, whenever, whenever asked me anything, I said, I always try to, you know, repay that, that, that favor saying, you know, hey, um, people were very kind and generous to me when I was just starting out. You know, it's the least I can possibly do for anyone else
0: yeah i feel the same way yeah it's it it is an amazing community there are very few communities that that, you know that i've worked in any way that that actually act like that you know everyone's like well you'll figure it out (laughs) you know just keep doing it right but in our in our community it's like you will figure out your own way of doing it and here are some here are some tips to help you find that path you know to go like down the path and find your way which is amazing
1: yeah and that 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 whole attitude, I was just kind of amazed with. Even big name tellers said, Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, do this. You know, or and it still happens. You know, like I said, I, I was just at this festival, Timpanogos, and you know, Bill Harley's looking at me and like, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, you, know, you know that story? He had some questions about a story I told him, Oh, why don't you try it this way? You can try it that way. This is really cool. Why don't you do this? I'm like, this is cool. This is what I miss. This is what I really, really love about this community, and what yeah. I miss about not being Face to face, sitting down yes. and just talking to other storytellers, yeah. I really miss that.
0: Yeah, and Bill's a good one to talk to too. He's amazing because you know I've, he is. You know, I've been he's to done it all. Of, <laughs> he, has, he has. He and Len Cabral, right? And, and 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 there's a few other people in that posse. But yeah, um, Bill is. You know, I love if if I'm at a festival or a conference where he is, I'll kind of like, I'll shadow him at a discussion. <laughs>
1: I call yes. it stalking.
0: Well, you can <laughs> if you want. I, I like to call it shadowing. <laughs> but it's like it's it's you know to 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 listen to him and and you know someone like Charlotte Blake Alston uh, have a conversation. Uh, oh yeah, just listen to the two of them talk about this craft and, and and about performances and about ethics and about you know race, everything. You know, it's like the, there's no topic left unturned by Bill. You know, he just like goes in really really deeply, which I love. So, um, we talked, we, we talked a little bit about, um, your life in Hawaii, but one of the other things that, that came up when I was reading up about you is these plantation stories. Now I didn't yeah. realize that there were plantations on Hawaii, which is, you know, it's stupid really because there are plantations everywhere. Um, but you know, it's again, it's, it's, so what were these plantation camps that, that were that are there or were there?
1: Okay, well, um we can go back to the history, I suppose. Uh, the missionaries came in about you know you know Cook discovered the islands you know the seventeen seventies or so, and, and immediately you know uh, the uh, missionaries came in about eighteen twenty or so. Hawaiians had no written language, so one of the things the missionaries did was create a written language of Hawaiian, which was so they could you know spread you know publish the Bible in that language as well as and the, the Hawaiians felt like you know hey here's a we don't have a written language we do everything orally here's a written language which we can actually have our own language so that was a great step forward um on the other hand you know a lot of the of the the old ways old traditions were were pushed aside um when when the missionaries came in and uh about uh you know the americans and english and all these people the, the the french the russians you know the spanish all these immigrants started coming into the islands and uh, they kept pressuring the the king to go and you know you know because the king owned all the land and everyone just kind of like you know were granted rights to go and, and use it but the king owned everything and these other people kept kind of telling you know the king you know you should really allow some of the land to be owned privately And uh, finally, in 1846, there was something called the Great Mahele, which, uh, okay, people could actually own land now. And a lot of the the Native Hawaiians were like the Native Americans in that they had no concept of land ownership. And so when these foreigners came in and offered them money to go and buy their land, they said, oh, sure, money, we can do that here. Take the land. And then so I think in a matter of 30 years or something like that, um, by the 1870s, most of the land was owned by foreigners and a lot of these people wow. were the sons and daughters of the missionaries the original missionaries who had gone into business and uh, they began to raise sugarcane 1835 i think it was the first sugarcane plantation opened on the island of Kauai, i believe and by the eight, you know by the civil war time sugar prices were really high because you know the country was at war and uh, so you know there was all these trade agreements between the Kingdom of Hawaii and the United States. Um, and so sugar barons you know ruled the roost and then pineapple came in was cultivated there once they were able to go and, and irrigate a lot of the lands from these natural natural aquifers. Um, and so whaling was circling the drain by the 1870s, 1880s and uh, sugar was was king and they needed, Sugar is in, in working in a tropical environment, high humidity, high heat, and they needed workers. It's very labor intensive, and so they needed workers. So they first brought in Chinese laborers on five-year contracts, but it was hard work. And a lot of these Chinese, they took them after their five-year contract was done. They went back to China, or else they left the plantations and started opening up businesses. And a lot of them, you know, didn't want to work on the plantations anymore, and so they needed another source of labor. Right. So Japanese started coming in about the 1868, I think was the first um, immigration. And by the 1880s, uh, there are lots of Japanese coming in. Um, and then they went on to other, as, as they worked the plantations and left the plantations fulfilling their labor contracts, you know, they brought in Puerto Ricans, they brought in um, uh, the Filipinos, they brought in all these different other ethnicities into the camps to be part of the labor force. Um, the Portuguese were brought in. Um, they were more closely you know, of European stock. So they were made uh, lunas or first line supervisors. And all these ethnic, ethnicities, the, the Koreans, the Okinawans, the Japanese, the Puerto Ricans, the Filipinos, the Portuguese were all in separate isolated camps. They were not allowed to mix very much because the sugar barons, they knew. Oh, they weren't allowed they weren't allowed to mix they well just, they just, rather just... have them uh, in their own caps that, so that the owners could set them against each other that way they oh, would not organize right. and they would you know they would always be fighting yeah. amongst themselves so that uh, they, the the owners could maintain power right and so you know this this whole system of you know and you you you'd you'd buy things on credit at the company store and at the at the, at the at the sugar harvest, they were they, I guess there were two harvests. There was the little pay and the big pay. The little pay is halfway through, and I guess the big pay is after when the sugar is actually sold. And uh, you know, but you're buying things in credit from the company store. And at the end, when you got paid, they said, "Okay, you owe us this much. You made this much. Okay, you still owe us this much, or here's a little bit of money left over." Um, wow. so oh that was you know that was kind of the whole thing but they, you know they 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 gave you company housing you know they took care of you know your needs and things like that but again the pay was very small because you know that was they were saving the, the labor labor they brought in all these ethnicities for the cheap labor and uh you know as a result you know the this plantation system perpetuated and basically these sugar barons and pineapple bar, you know pineapple barons they they basically ran the state, even though it was a territory of the United States as of you know the 1900s or so, it was run. No, no, no major decision was made except with the approval of these businessmen, and that was true pretty much up until uh, almost statehood, and that's when you know things that's really changed amazing. after that.
0: Yeah, that's amazing to think that that it changed so quickly. You know, it went from being, you know, lands that was that belonged to everybody right even though the king owned it it belonged the land it was their land right to some degree and then as soon as it started to be sold it it then does not become their land and you've all of a sudden you've got this 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 magnet these magnets of industry that were just running the place that's fascinating stuff that's fascinating. So you, you do ghost stories, and I like your ghost stories. <laughs> <laughs> but as I understand it, you did not like ghost stories when you were a kid. Is that right?
1: Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> I was terrified of them. <laughs> See, growing up in Hawaii, everybody had ghost stories. I mean, they knew something happened to them or something happened to a friend of theirs. And they're always, you know, when you, get a, you sit around, and you think thing we call a talk story. You call it gossip here. We call it talk story back home. Everyone would just sit around and they tell stories. And when they start telling ghost stories, I would plug my ears and I would walk away just because these things are so real and so scary to me. I mean, uh, you know, I can almost imagine these things actually happening to me because my, my uh, imagination is so wild. Um, And it wasn't until I became a storyteller that I realized, Hey, I'm not hearing the ghost stories that I used to as a kid. People aren't telling them anymore. And at the time, there was a man by the name of Dr. Glenn Grant, and he collected ghost stories and the strange stories from my wife over 30 years. And uh, so I made an appointment. I talked to him and we sat down and he said, well, why do you want to tell ghost stories? And I sat there and thought about it. And I said, you know, there is it was such an important part of my life growing up that you know, I was scared of it, but it was always there. And now I don't hear those stories anymore. And I want to share with people that slice of Hawaii, that slice of life that I remember as a kid. And, you know, because it doesn't exist anymore. And he kind of looked at me and said, yeah, okay, that's a good idea. And, um, you know, so I really, I started telling his ghost stories. And, um, you know, that was when I was first starting out, you know, maybe the early 90s. uh, As a, you know, just as a fooling around telling story type things. Um, he passed away in 2003, and uh, but I maintain a, a a relationship, you know, just a, a friendship with his business partner. And um, now uh, I've been granted approval from the business partner and his estate to tell all of Glenn Grant's stories from Hawaii. Um, That's great. And so, you yeah, know, my whole point is to keep his memory and his work alive. Because, uh, again, these stories are, you know... At the time when I was growing up everybody knew these stories, but now um, you don't hear that as much. Um, right. and uh, you know, he was the first person to actually go and try and, and, and publish these stories.
0: Have you have you thought about collecting them yourself? Like going to I have the elders. That,
1: that well, yeah. People tell me stories, and I and I, you know, a lot of my a lot of the, the weird stories uh, I've heard from other people, and i i they've given me their permission to tell their stories, and so mm-hmm. you know, I am collected a few, nowhere near, because you know, Doctor Glenn Grant, he was Doctor <laughs> Glenn Grant, he was, you know, he uh, was able, he was called the Obake Man. Obake is Japanese for ghost, and he spent oh. his 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 whole, you know, like I said, thirty year career collecting stories, and he had a photographic memory. I mean, he oh, could nice. recall everything, you know? So like, <laughs> I, I, sorry, I told, yeah, he would... Uh... Oh, he has a book due Monday? Okay. Friday, he just, just starts typing. And then by by Monday, he'd have a book because he just had all this stuff on at, at at, at, at top of his mind. It's kind of amazing. Oh, um, that
0: by the grace of God, get they who have those things. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just an encyclopedic knowledge, you know. And yeah. he was a historian. And it's just, just, he added that extra thing. And that's what I, I, I like to do um, in telling the stories. I'm not. not interesting just just the spooky stories but why the history behind the haunting what possibly could be going on there what was it like when the story occurred these are all the little details that i really enjoy so not just ooh spooky but ooh spooky and you know here's a legend (laughs) of what might be going on here or here's something an incident that happened in that area that might be related to this haunting That's very interesting to me. The cultural aspect, the historic aspect, and possibilities. To me, that makes a very complete story.
0: We'll take a break here and end this conversation, part one of two with Alton Chung. The next episode, we talk about healing with story, ghost tales, and collecting stories and story structure. Thanks for being here,
1: and we'll be back soon. Sorry.